Well, church, what do you think? Are you blessed by that? We have a lot to celebrate, do we not? Yes. We rejoice in what Christ has done. In fact, we see the work that He has done in the Gospel of John. I invite you to find your way to John chapter 20. We'll be considering the account of the resurrection of our Lord this morning in John 20. You'll find that on page 906 in the Pew Bible in front of you. And I invite you to uh, take a copy of your uh, the Word out. Uh, we're going to just be working through verse by verse as is our custom. And if you're visiting with us today, we're so delighted to have you here this morning. And we invite you to open God's Word with us as we consider what God has to say to us about the resurrection of our Lord. So hopefully you found your way to John chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the Word of God. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid Him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb, both of them running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there. But he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, whom had reached the tomb first, also went in. And he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that He might rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid Him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary... She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that He had said these things to her. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word in which we can consider now. We pray that your spirit would come upon us, that you might open our hearts to rejoice in these great truths. Give us sight to see the glory of Christ as he has conquered the grave. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Mark Dever, in a sermon on a similar text, recalled an event that occurred on September 11th. 1893 in Chicago, when a striking figure arose to address an unusual audience. His name was Swami 
Vivekananda. He was an aristocrat about the age of 30 years old from a prominent family in Calcutta, India. He stood before the parliament of the world's religions, which was associated with the world's fair. And there before an assembled 7,000 delegates, he rose and introduced Hinduism to an American audience. And he explained in his beliefs that he understood that all religions teach roughly the same thing. Of course, many people had already come to that conclusion, but it was very strange there at this time for a religious man to actually be advocating the same thing. Over the course of his time in America, his influence grew. One account says, by far the most important representative of Hinduism was Swami Vivekananda, who in fact was beyond question the most popular and influential man in the parliament. He was received with greater enthusiasm than any other speaker, Christian or pagan. The people thronged about him wherever he went and hung with eagerness on his every word. The most rigid of Orthodox Christians say of him, he is indeed the prince among men. The New York Herald would write that Vivekananda is undoubtedly the greatest figure in the parliament of religions. After hearing him, we feel how foolish it is to send missionaries to this learned nation. The core of his appeal, the core of his talk was, and I quote him, Truth is one, the wise call it by many names. What do you think? Are all religions roughly the same? This seems to be a common view in our day that many would suggest to us that we all roughly land in the same place. We just call our gods by different names. We perhaps differ on the peripheral matters. But at the core, don't they teach the same thing? I think that's a fair question. I do. I think many people have asked that question. I think it's been asked by millions. Perhaps it's been even asked by some even in this room. Now, one way to get at that question is to consider the, the religious leader and the, the, the teachings that he left and the life that he lived and even the, the death that he died. And it's in that last point that Christians are so preoccupied this time of year with the, with the death of our religious leader, Jesus Christ. He, of course, died just as every other one who taught religion did. But what was interesting about Jesus is that he taught that the purpose of his life was not his teaching or his example or even his miracles. But the very point of his life was found in his death. How utterly unique that is. How, I mean, that's kind of strange, isn't it? That Jesus would, would walk this, this world and, and begin to talk about what's important is not simply what I tell you and what I do, but ultimately it is how I die. For instance, in John 12, he said to the woman who anointed his feet, leave her alone that she might, that she may be, keep it for the day of my burial. Or in John 10, he said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And, and of course, he did die. And, and not quietly and peaceably in the arms of those who love him, but brutally executed as a state criminal under the Roman Empire. And yet he taught that it was in his death that he would actually accomplish something that none of his teaching or his example ever could. For instance, even in this gospel in John 6, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. 
Or in John 12, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. It's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus thought that in his death, fruit or blessings would come from that. Even eternal blessings, as he said, you must partake in my death if you are to have eternal life. He actually taught that he had come to give his life as a ransom price for sinners. Surely you understand how unique that is. Surely you understand how totally unlike any other religious leader that is. No Buddha or Swami or Muhammad would ever make such claims about his death. But the question I think then remains, how do we know if it's true or not? How, I mean, it's one thing to say, in my death, I pay for the sins of all humanity. But how do we actually verify that? And anybody can say that. How do you back that talk up? Well, this is where Christianity becomes utterly unique is that not only did our religious leader die, but our religious leader came back from the dead. He rose again. He proved it. I actually had a conversation similar with my son a couple weeks ago when I was tucking him down um, in bed, and, and he's coming to understand now that he's getting a little bit older that there are other religions out there and people who actually believe things that we don't believe. And, and we think we're right, and, and they think they're right. And he said, Daddy, it's not that I don't believe, but how do we know? And every dad, when his uh, child asks that question, every Christian dad gets excited because they, they realize that their child is, is owning their own faith. It's just not something given, but it's becoming their own. And, and we talked about, well, how is it that we know? What a wonderful question. How do we know we are right? Well, I would tell you this morning what I told my son. We know it because Christ rose from the dead. He's alive. See, all religious leaders die. They they all, their bodies and ashes are placed in tombs. Most of them you can visit today. And Jesus also died and his body was also placed in a tomb. But unlike any person ever before, any leader or common man, his story does not end in the tomb. Three days later, as he foretold, he rose from the dead, validating all of his claims. We believe today because he lives, because he is alive. And the wonderful thing that God has done for us in His great kindness is He asks us not to believe simply by blind faith. Now, we must have faith. There is no doubt. But it is a reasoned faith. It is a faith based upon evidence because Christ has left behind evidence of His resurrection. I want to consider the witnesses to this historical event that is the foundation of our faith today. I want to listen to their testimony as we see here in John chapter 20. You see, the first line of evidence is an empty tomb. We see it in verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And so she would come on that Easter Sunday morning before the rising of the sun As some have said, sorrow wakes early. And she arrives there in this pre-dawn darkness, perhaps serving as a metaphor for the mourning of her soul. And there she comes to the tomb to, to pay her respects to her Lord, who in her mind is dead and buried. And you can imagine her surprise as mournful Mary approaches the tomb, only to see the stone is rolled away. And we'll see in a moment that she looked in and she found no body within that tomb. 
She was immediately startled, as you see in verse 2. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. The other disciple being John. He'll never mention his name in his gospel, but he'll constantly refer to himself as the beloved disciple. And so she sees the stone rolled away and realizes the tomb is empty. And she runs to Simon Peter and she runs to John. And we wonder, well, why is she running to them? Is she filled with exhilaration? Is she is she running back now that she has seen the empty tomb shouting, He's alive! He's alive! As she comes upon them. No, friends, far from it. For you note what she says in verse 2. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid Him. She says there he, they've taken Him. He has been taken. She does not believe in the resurrection. Yet, at least yet. It never entered her mind. She simply ran for help. She simply concluded that, that her body was been removed by other people, most likely grave robbers, which was very common in this day. In fact, just a handful of years before Christ was crucified, grave robbery will become a capital crime there. And so she expects that, that, that he has been robbed. The grave has been robbed. She's not expecting the resurrection. She and the other apostles are not these easily gullible, easily excitable people. They never expected to see Jesus again. It never enters her mind. Well, you see what Peter and John do according to verse 3. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the the tomb first. And so they, filled with anxiety, they run to the tomb. They just leave poor weeping Mary behind and off they go. I very much appreciate verse 4 when John uh, tells us in the midst of all the other details he could have included by, about the greatest miracle ever to happen, the resurrection of the Lord, he wants us all to know that he won the race. <laughs> uh, you could tell he had brothers, doesn't he? So uh, I, I can just imagine every time Peter opened the Bible to preach this text, his eyes rolled a little bit when he came to verse 4 thinking, why does this have to be here? There's no theological significance. It's just bragging rights. And I, I just really appreciate that. And so John comes and, and he comes to the graveside. And he gets there first, leaving Peter way behind. And, and we see this second line of evidence to the resurrection of Christ, the grave clothes. Notice verse 5. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there. But he did not go in. And so John, very cautious, kind of comes to the open tomb and crouches down to look through the low door and we see what he doesn't see. He doesn't see a body, but he sees the linens, the burial clothes lying there. Now that would be very strange if Christ was stolen, if this was grave robbery, because you wouldn't take time to unwrap the body. Um, and certainly you wouldn't want to carry around a naked corpse. And even more than that, the value is found actually in the spices in the linen wraps. We know that Jesus was buried in 75 pounds of spices. That was a a royal burial. That would be worth a fortune of money. And so they certainly would not leave these behind. And it's really just not adding up. And John's there stooping and looking down. And and as he does, Peter finally catches up, except he doesn't stop. He comes running, huffing and puffing. And he pushes John out of the way and runs right into the tomb. For we see there in Verse 6, then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. And so in he comes. And you notice what Peter saw. Verse 6 tells us he saw just like John the linen cloths lying there. But verse 7 adds this, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. According to the Jewish burial customs, they would take these strips of linen 
And they would wrap the body and in between the strips they would apply all these spices and, 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 uh, and, and lay them in there. And sometimes the spices would stick together and stick all the linen strips together. And they, they would put the body on a slab. They are cut from the side of a limestone tomb. And Peter comes in and he's very confused. In fact, you can't tell in the um, in English. But in verse 6 when it says he saw the linen clothes lying there, it, it's a different word. That word saw, it really means scrutinize. He investigated. He didn't quite understand what's going on. He looked at them. The grave clothes, the Bible says, are literally lying in their place as, as, if, as if the body just simply passed through them. I mean, there they are, just lying there. And in addition, you have this face cloth, which is a little bit farther away, and it's folded and put in a separate place, almost as if the individual is done using it, and so he folded it and, and put it away. And Peter's just dumbfounded. He doesn't, this is not work. How does this fit, all come together? You could appreciate his confusion, I think, if you think the body's stolen. I don't know if you ever had your house broken into or maybe a car broken into. And, and you, you immediately know that someone has been in your house and, because they usually leave the place a mess, don't they? They break a window or kick down a door and they, they're just going through your drawers and dumping everything out because they're, they're looking for valuables and they're in a hurry, aren't they? They don't stop to fold your laundry. Well, we could use that kind of break-in in my house, by the way. But, right? but Peter looks at this and says, it's all, it's all orderly. There's no sign of haste. There's no sign of fear. Everything is decent. And he stands there just scratching his head, not sure what's going on. And finally, it hits John, for we see in verse 8, then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. He believed. He believed that Jesus is risen. He looked at all the evidence, the, the empty tomb and the linen clothes lying there and in the place in which they're lying and the, the headscarf over here folded up and he puts it all together and, and he places his faith in the resurrected Lord. And some people have argued, well, if, if Jesus could pass his body, his glorified body, pass through the linen clothes, well, why does why do they, he have to roll the stone away? Why can't he just pass through the stone? Well, he could have. The stone's not rolled away to let Jesus out. It's rolled away to let them in. And to let us in this morning, thousands of years later, that we too might consider the evidence. And John does and he believes, though he he admits in verse 9 that his faith is not based upon his understanding of Scripture. For the Word says, for as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. John admits his ignorance. He says, we still didn't get it. We still didn't put it together. In other words, they're not making up some story because they had some preconceived theology that the Messiah must raise from the dead. Oh, it never occurred to him from Scripture. He just saw it. He saw the evidence and he believed. Well, verse 10 says they left that tomb. Then the disciples went back to their homes. I, I trust to discuss with other people. And as they left... Mary comes back to the tomb. She is drawn back once again to this empty tomb. Now, we don't know much about Mary Magdalene, but I think we would do well to distinguish between silly tradition and biblical truth. There's no evidence that Mary was a prostitute. There is, moreover, no evidence that Mary ever anointed Jesus. All we know about Mary Magdalene is from Luke chapter 8. That she, along with some other women, traveled with Jesus and she actually supported Jesus' ministry financially. 
We know that she probably did because right before we're introduced to this support, it says that Jesus, right before that, it says Jesus had freed her from the domination of seven demons. In other words, she was an object of Jesus' special grace. And we don't know how she came to find herself in such a terrible fate under such terrible masters, but I think we would be safe to speculate it was probably due to sin that opened the door for such a bondage. And Christ met her, and Christ freed her, and Christ restored her, and Christ forgave her. In fact, right before we're introduced to Mary, Jesus says, He who is forgiven much, loves much. And then here comes Mary desperately in love with Jesus. And therefore, we can understand verse 11 as we consider the resurrected Lord. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And there poor Mary, all by herself, weeping. It's all too much for her. And she stands there at the empty tomb, alone, sobbing, unable to cope with this compounding loss. In fact, her grief is so sad and her tears are so prolific that she's not even startled by the two angels that now occupy the tomb, for we see in verse 12. And she saw two angels sitting in white, standing where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They have a question for Mary, according to verse 13. Woman, they ask, why are you weeping? I wonder if that's a gentle rebuke to Mary. In other words... There's no reason to cry, Mary. In fact, one individual has said if there is one place in space and one moment in time when tears are least appropriate, it is at the empty tomb of Jesus on Easter morning. Well, if they are correcting her, it is oblivious to Mary, for we read on in verse 13, in which she said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid her. I love how she continues to refer to Jesus. He's my Lord. He's my Lord. Even though she thinks him to be dead, he still remains in that position. And she says, I don't know where he is. And it's almost in response to that cry of her heart that that her prayer is answered. For we see in verse 14, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. I don't know, it just seems kind of silly to me, doesn't it? I mean, mean, there he is, this woman who's unconsolable, even by angels themselves, and there is face to face with Christ, and she's missing it. She doesn't even recognize it. And we don't know why. Perhaps her tears are, are, are too many. Perhaps Christ is so glorified that she's not expecting to see someone so radiant and, and wonderful and glorious. At the very least, we could, we can tell that she had no expectation, once again, of him to rise from the dead. Well, they have a conversation in verse 15. Jesus said to her, just like the angels did, woman, why are you weeping? And then he adds this question, whom are you seeking? Right? Not what are you seeking, but who are you looking for, Mary? Who are you looking for among the dead? Christ asks her. Her answer, filled with sadness, is here in verse 15, supposing him to be a gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Leaving us, I think, wondering how does Mary think she's going to manage the body of a full-grown man. She is not only sad, but she is confused. But she got one thing right. This man to whom she is now speaking is responsible for the body not being in the tomb. And she finally realizes it when we read verse 16. 
Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned to him and said in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher or master. I hope you can feel the weight of what's going on here in Scripture, that this woman who was once unclean, who was once an outcast, who was once alone to endure her terrible bondage, one day she met Jesus. And then she was cleansed. And and, and then she was welcomed. And then she was embraced and forgiven and released and loved. Which is why on Friday... Mary's world was destroyed as her Lord was killed and killed in the most brutal form, crucified. We have no idea the violence that she must have saw, the the grief that she must have experienced as all her hopes were dashed upon the ground and faith was ripped from her heart. And yet there's one thing that remains alive in Mary and it is her love for Jesus. It was her love that brought her to the cross when all the other disciples in their cowardice fled to secure for themselves uh, their own safety. It was love that, that made her unwilling to depart from Jesus as He died upon the cross. And it was the love for Mary that summoned her to that, uh, the love for Jesus rather, that summoned her to the tomb on that Sunday morning. And yet, what does she find but the stone rolled away and the body stolen and she must have thought why is this all happening this is too much is there no end to this misery you think about what she must have experienced all compounding upon her i wonder if you've ever experienced grief too deep for words ever experienced an ache in your heart that you simply cannot express I wonder if your hopes have ever been dashed upon the ground and you look at your life and say, this is not how it's supposed to be. And your future, which you thought was certain and directed, is now on its head. And you wonder, what is going on here? And then even to feel alone all in the middle of it. If you have, maybe you can identify with the pain that this woman felt as she stands there in unimaginable sorrow and grief, weeping to such an extent that she cannot be consoled by angels themselves, much less some supposed gardener. Until that gardener says one word. Her name. Mary, he says. My sheep know my voice, and they will follow me, for I will call them by name. Mary, he says, and in an instant, like a child recognizing the voice of her father, she hears him call, and at once all of her anguish and grief is swallowed up in astonishment and delight. In that moment, her faith was resurrected as it came leaping out of that empty tomb, and hope was given new life in her heart. Is this not the point of the resurrection of Christ? That the hurting might have hope. That the doubting might have reason to trust. Certainly the resurrection means more than that, but it cannot mean less than that. For due to sin and our rebellion in this world, we live in a land of sorrow and hurt, of unmet desires and shattered dreams and unexpected diseases and inevitable death. I tell you that Christ has come to conquer it all. That on the cross He took the full force of sin and death upon Him and died only to three days later rise in victory over death that you today might have hope. 
that you might have faith in the risen Lord. He has come to give this to you. And I tell you, no matter what hurts this life brings upon you, you can have hope. For one day, Christian, He will call you by name. Can you imagine that day? Can you imagine what that will be like when your Lord calls your name? Therefore, I tell you, no matter what this world brings upon you, no, no matter when loneliness darkens the sky or, or uncertainty gathers on the horizon or when the torrents of trouble and trial rain down upon you, know that Jesus is alive. He is returning and He will call you by name. Let that day be a refuge to which you flee in the, this world's trouble. Let your mind rehearse the grandeur of that day that you might say to your troubled soul and your weeping heart, My God lives and He shall call me home by name one day. Flee there, troubled soul. We have victory over sin through Christ. We have victory over the grave through our Lord. Well, Mary kind of gets it now. As we see in verse 17, Jesus said to her, Do not cling me. Evidently, she runs and embraces her Lord, perhaps falling at His feet and clutching them as her body now heaves with sobs of joy. And yet Jesus says to her, Don't, don't hold on to Mary. It's too tight. It's too tight, Mary. I, I have work left to do. I have yet to send to my God, my Father. He says, I need to go home. I didn't just raise from the dead to stay here forever. I came to give evidence. I came to prove publicly verified to over 500 people that I am alive. I came to commission you all to continue my work. And I'm going home to rule and to reign and to intercede on your behalf. He says, I need to go home. But then he sends her away, doesn't he? With this wonderful saying, he's, he says, but go to my, my brothers. My brothers. He used to call them servants or disciples, or, or even friends. But now we are brothers with Christ. How can that possibly be? Well, read on before he says that, that go to my brothers and say to them, I am sending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God, that, that God has become your Father, that He has adopted you into His family through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross in the empty tomb. He announces that God is now your Father. Just like He's my Father, He's your Father. It's different. He doesn't say our Father, so there's some difference. But He says, nevertheless, just like God is my God and my Father, He is your God and your Father. And go tell the, my brothers this. And she does in verse 18. Mary went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he said these things to her. She goes and tells. I find it interesting, by the way, that the first woman, first witness of the resurrected Lord is a woman of questionable background. Not an apostle or a high priest. That interesting. A woman who would not even in that day be allowed to testify in court. Why would, why would the Bible write it this way? Well, because that's how it happened. This is true. If you're making this story up, you don't start with this being your first witness. That's what happened. Plus, it shows us that Christ comes to the needy and the hurting. And she was a changed woman. She comes back saying, I have seen the Lord, she says. I have seen the Lord. And she has changed forever. And some people consider Mary's life and they look at her and they, and they, they see how she has been transformed. And, and we're, we're happy for Mary, aren't we? We're just pleased that this, this happened for Mary. And, and, we, and people conclude, well, I'm, I'm glad that Jesus works for Mary. 
but he, he doesn't work for me. And so it's good that, that Jesus works for, for you all Christians, and, and I'm glad you found what you're looking for, but, but I, I don't find him helpful. This is how in our country, in our day, we begin, tend to evaluate religion. Is it helpful? Does it help me? And that, and that kind of sounds good, I think, in the pluralistic land that we live in. But I want to be clear here that, that John is not giving us advice. This is not advice. This is not even a matter of opinion or preference. This is not a matter of subjective helpfulness. This is a matter of historical fact or fiction. The question is not, does Jesus work for me? The question is, did Jesus rise from the dead? Historically, bodily, physically. He did or he did not. If he did not, we are fools. And Christianity is a farce. But if he did, there is eternal implications for every person in this room. Massive, never-ending implications. In fact, earlier in John's Gospel, as we end our time in God's Word, in John 3, you know this verse, in verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him, therefore, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. That's not exactly what Vivekananda taught when he said, truth is one, the wise call it by many names. It's not exactly that all religions are the same. I think John would politely disagree that this Jesus who said no one comes to the Father but by me died and rose from the dead. And I tell you, Vivekananda will give you no help today. He died 100 years ago. Buddha will give you no help today. Nor will Muhammad or any other. They all died as well. But there is one who died and yet rose from the grave and proved it to us. He entered the tomb like all the others, but he has victory over that. He rose. He's alive. And John writes this book for, to prove this to be true for us. If you notice in verse 30 of John chapter 20, it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. This is what John writes this, so that you, like Mary, may believe. I invite you today to believe in Christ, to bow your knee to Christ. You notice the emphasis is on belief, not what you have to do. There are no boxes to check or religious rituals to keep or uh, rules to follow. It is faith in Christ, trusting in Christ. And yet we must be sure what it means when he says believe is I think there are many people who would agree with the set of facts that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead and yet are not saved. In fact, Jesus would say to me, many, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Many who will look at Jesus and say, that's my Lord. Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. I think there are thousands of those people in our land. Maybe even thousands in Loudoun County. Maybe even one or two here this morning. Who would say, I agree with these facts. But there is no love for Christ. There is no repentance. There is no pursuit of Christ. I tell you this morning on the authority of God's word. 
that you must, your faith must lead into a changed life, a repentant life. It is not enough for you simply to admire Jesus. You must love Him. That's what I invite you to do today, to love Christ. Of course, others struggle. Well, how can I believe in it? All this happened 2,000 years ago. Well, as I mentioned, I don't think this is blind faith. There's evidence. There's, there's witnesses here. They come bringing their testimony, and, and you live much of your life believing testimony. For instance, what if you came home this afternoon and your doorbell rang and a friend stood there with a very long face and he says, I have some terrible news for you. Your brother Joshua is dead. And you say to him, oh, that can't be. I was just with him this morning. No, it's not possible. I, just, I, was just, I was just with him. And he says to you, I know, but we went to lunch this afternoon and, and we were driving and we were hit at an intersection and and I, I took him and I held him in my lap and, and, and I watched him die. And I waited for the medical examiner to come and, and he pronounced him dead and they, they carried him away, up to, they put him in a body bag. He's, he's dead. And you might say something like, oh, I see. And so what do you mean when you say I see? Because you didn't see like this man, your friend saw. You didn't see like Mary saw. What do you mean is you see through their... Their witness, their testimony, you see through their eyes. I haven't seen the resurrected Lord. I've never encountered Jesus in, in His body. But I've heard the witness. The witness is here and elsewhere. He appeared to over 500 people that you might have hope and trust in the resurrection of the Lord. That you might give your life to Him. In fact, the only difference between that story and the Bible is that He's not dead, but He's alive. It would be as if you are there weeping on the couch over the loss of your brother and another friend barges through the door and says, He's alive! He's alive! I was just with Him! He's alive! That's what Mary tells us this morning. He's alive. That's what I tell you this morning, my friend. Jesus Christ is alive. The Lord is risen. Father in heaven, we thank you that our Lord has conquered the grave. We thank you that Jesus is alive and reigns today. We thank you that he in his great kindness has left for us the evidence that we might trust and believe. We thank you that he gives hope to the hurting and faith to the doubting. I pray that you would do this work in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.